congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. At this point in the book of Ezra, uh, the story actually skips forward about uh, 56 years from the previous chapter that uh, records the, uh, the completion of the temple and its dedication and uh, the first Passover that was observed by that first wave of exiles who were uh, released from Babylon, first of all under King Cyrus, as, as you recall. But our text records what we might call the next wave of returning captives from Babylon. Here under Ezra, Ezra himself. Ezra is the author of this book, but it's only in this chapter that uh, he is actually introduced into the narrative, and towards the end of the chapter we heard him speak in the first person, referring to myself. What we have here at the middle, or towards even the end of this book of Ezra, is the ongoing account of the grace and faithfulness of God uh, to his promises to bring back and restore uh, to Jerusalem, to rebuild his temple, his uh, exiled people. And throughout this book, in the earlier part and also here, it is the, the house of God and the, the worship of God that is at the very center of uh, God's purposes of, of grace. Uh, Artaxerxes was moved by God, certainly, to contribute uh, towards the honoring or beautifying the house of the Lord. That's very significant for our understanding of what's going on here. In New Testament terms, we might say that this corresponds to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who builds his church and uh, the gates of hell, the opposition of Satan and all his power does not thwart that church-building work of Jesus. It doesn't prevail against uh, God's purposes in him. And it's in this light, then, we want to take special note of uh, a reoccurring, reoccurring language in this, and uh, it's also found in the next chapter. And that is this language of the hand of God, or the, the good hand of the Lord. Uh, the hand of the Lord was upon him. That's mentioned twice in verse uh, 6 and again in verse 9. And then towards the end of the chapter, Ezra speaks in the first person and speaks how the hand of the Lord uh, was upon him. And that is just very wonderful language. Uh, it is language of God's power. It is language of God's providential ruling over all these events in a very close way, in a very intimate uh, way. And that teaches us how to see God at work in our text. And it teaches us that in a way that also helps us uh, to see God's hand at work in the church today and in our families and in our own personal lives. The hand of the Lord works wonderfully for his church. That's our theme. And we're going to begin by considering how the hand of the Lord worked by preparing his servant for ministry. That is, by preparing Ezra. Ezra is introduced by his priestly pedigree. Uh, he is a descendant of Aaron the high priest. And that also means that he belongs uh, to those who are called by God to be teachers in Israel. Remember how the book of Malachi describes the work of the priest. 
that goes beyond that of offering sacrifices, where it says, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, that description of a priest uh, certainly fits uh, the description of Ezra as, uh, as a teacher, as a scribe that is especially gifted by God. He was especially gifted for that task, as that's indicated in a number of different ways in this chapter. He is called a, a skilled scribe in the law. And we shouldn't stumble at that word scribe because we're so used to hearing it in a negative way with reference to the scribes and Pharisees. And we might think of uh, someone that has a kind of obsessive interest in tradition in a way that is contrary to the word of God. But uh, Ezra was a true scribe, one who, who wrote and taught the word of God. And so don't stumble over that language of scribe. He was uh, a skilled scribe. He was expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. Even uh, Artaxerxes refers to him and his God-given wisdom in verse 25. And... Uh, the church needs such experts. That is, the church needs, and our Lord Jesus Christ graciously provides uh, pastors and teachers, those who are especially called and equipped for this task of teaching, preaching the Word of God. I suppose there's always a danger of falling into one extreme or the other. And it may well be that in times past, even in Reformed churches, the minister was put on such a high uh, pedestal that many people despaired of being able to read the Bible for themselves and really understand it and grow in knowledge through their own study. And uh, that certainly is an erroneous view that denies the, the priesthood of all believers and the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells all the people of God. And we're to read the Scriptures for ourselves and trust that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding. But I think in our day, the, the danger is in the opposite extreme, where uh, there's a kind of democratic view of religious opinion, as if everyone's ideas are just as good as anyone else's. And uh, Bible study is a matter of sharing personal opinions and impressions. And the idea of those who are uh, experts in the law of God and who are especially equipped uh, for teaching, that seems to be rather undemocratic and uh, maybe unpopular. I know there are a lot of people who are perfectly willing uh, to participate in roundtable religious discussions. They're willing to go to Bible studies. They're willing to participate in, in uh, religious activities where they get a chance to talk, where they get a chance to share their own, their own opinions. But the idea of sitting and listening to one person give a, a, a speech or a sermon while they just sit silently without contributing anything... Well, not so much. Uh, but that, that uh, rather negative view of the teaching ministry uh, certainly is not encouraged by the Scripture. Christ gave uh, pastors and teachers. And uh, any kind of distaste for that really coincides with a view of Scripture that really undermines its authority. Because the Bible's a big book. And it's not only uh, taught in Scripture, but it makes sense that if the church is to be faithfully taught, that there must be those who really give themselves to understanding this big book and who wrestle with the hard questions 
and who learn how it all fits together and are equipped to use all the tools that are available, language studies, historical studies, interpretive studies, so that the Word of God might be faithfully taught as it is the Word of God with a unified message that's not always such a simple message, but has to be explained. And that actually involves a high view of Scripture, which coincides with a high view of the teaching ministry in the Church of Jesus Christ also uh, today. Such teachers, indeed, are Christ's gift to the church through his Holy Spirit. He ascended on high and gave gifts to men. And some he made apostles and prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And Ezra was especially gifted here in this setting for that task of teaching. And God's good hand on Ezra, that is uh, referred to in verse 9, his good hand upon Ezra uh, for the journey to Jerusalem is interestingly connected with his God-given qualifications for this office to which he is called. You hear that in uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, where it says uh, towards the, the end of verse 9, uh, that uh, he went up from Babylon to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. And then it says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. God protected his servant on the journey. It's actually the next chapter that, that elaborates uh, this journey to Jerusalem in a more complete way. It's just mentioned here. But it says God's good hand was upon him. And then it says, For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of God, to do it, and to teach it. So there's a close connection between God's protection and the purpose for which he raised up and sent Ezra to be a teacher for his people. And you notice that there are three components to Ezra's task here in his work as it's defined. First, it was to, to seek the law of the Lord, or to study it. And secondly, it was to do it. As a teacher, he was not simply to be a hearer, nor a teacher, but a doer of that word, so that by his own example and practice, he would bear testimony to its authority and truth over him, first of all, as a teacher. And we all recognize how important that is for any kind of effective ministry in the church, whatever it might be, that we would practice what we ourselves receive in order to be able to share it with others. And that's the third part of his task, uh, to teach it, to communicate it uh, to others. And actually, actually isn't this the pattern uh, for us all? Uh, whatever our calling, whatever our capacity... Uh, we're all called to, to, to seek the, the will of God. We're all called to read our Bibles and to uh, take it seriously and study it uh, in order to do it, in order to practice it. In fact, the New Testament, uh, in the words of our Savior, make a very close connection between wanting to do God's will and understanding it. It's understandable that people that really aren't cared to practice the Word of God have very confused ideas about it. But when there is the desire to receive God's word in order to believe it, in order to practice it, that is really crucial, even to understanding what it says. 
So we're all called to read the Word of God, intently study it, in order to do it, in order to share it. And maybe sharing it with our children, with our neighbor, or a Sunday school class. But whatever the case, that is the pattern that is uh, found here in this description of, uh, of Ezra. And you notice that at the root of this, um, this threefold task that he is involved in is a heart that is devoted to it. He set his heart to seek the law. You see, it's love for the Word of God. It's love for living the Word of God. It's love for others so that they also might learn the Word of God is really crucial, isn't it, uh, for receiving it and, and uh, living by it. And that, again, applies to all God's people. But certainly it applies to those who are called to be teachers in the church, as those who are uh, seeking a pastor, praying for a pastor. Pray for a pastor who loves the Word of God, who studies it, who practices it, who is equipped to uh, communicate it effectively. And pray for yourself, that you would truly seek the, Lord, the law of God, that you would study it, to do it, and so be equipped to share it. But God's good hand was upon uh, his people in providing Ezra, and that shows his love for his church. He sent a true reformer, you might say. Now, 56 years is not such a terrible long time, is it? I know there are many of you who can probably remember uh, 56 years ago without that much trouble, and it might not seem like such a long time. And it certainly is long enough for serious declension uh, to take place in, in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Judges, we read of a generation that arose that did not know the Lord. One generation, it seems like the truth was lost. And we find that even in this time of reformation, the church, the, the temple rather, has been rebuilt. Uh, there is renewed uh, zeal for God. But when Ezra returns, he has to deal with worldliness, put it that way. He finds that Israel had, had mixed in with the surrounding nations. And their influence was creeping in through mixed marriages among the people of God. And it actually doesn't take that long for worldliness to creep into the church. You might say that it seems to be coming in like a flood uh, in our days. As so many professing Christians, rather than uh, being absorbed by the word of God and being intent upon learning it and practicing it, are being overwhelmed by a flood of ungodly teaching and influences by every means. And it's hard to withstand the influences of the world that come to, at us from every direction and not be affected by it. We must be very diligent uh, to uh, be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we're not conformed to the world. And, and Ezra was sent in order to, uh, to direct the people to the law of God, to his word, and to protect them from the influences of the evil world in which they lived. You've probably heard the expression that uh, the Reformed church must always be a reforming church. And that is true, properly understood. But perhaps some of you also know that it's a slogan that has been used to suggest the idea that, that the Reformed church should always be kind of keeping up with the contemporary trends 
And uh, in order to be a reforming church, you kind of got to get with the times, and you got to kind of uh, conform to what's happening in society. And uh, actually, when the church conforms to the world and seems to be concerned with keeping up with go- what's going on in society, when what's going on is contrary to the Word of God, that's deformation. That's not reformation. And true reformation is always a return to the Scriptures, always a return to the Word of God uh, to live according to it. And God provided for His people then this kind of reform through the Scriptures and through a servant that He raised up. But secondly, the hand of God is evident here in this passage by moving the king, uh, King Artaxerxes, moving him to support God's people. And there are a number of things that actually is described in quite some detail here, what the king uh, did. First of all, he gave full endorsement uh, to Ezra's desire and his requests for such support. And uh, the first reference of the hand of the Lord being upon Ezra is in connection with the king giving him everything that he wanted. You see, all is attributed to God. In verse 28 and uh, 27 and 28, even that, that merciful disposition of the king toward Ezra. God moved the king to show favor to him. And that meant freedom for all those who wanted to go to Jerusalem, the priests, the people. Whoever wished to return with Ezra were allowed, they were given the freedom to uh, go back with him. That's similar, isn't it? For those of you who recall the the earlier part of the story, that's very similar to the decree of Cyrus. That's some 80 years ago now, from the perspective of this passage. It was some 80 years ago that Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, proclaimed this decree uh, as God's servant to release the people to return to Jerusalem. And uh, very, very many people did return at that time, but not all of them. Some stayed behind. And we don't know what their motives were, but I think it's remarkable, isn't it, that now, yet many years later, the Lord is still providing for his people the opportunity to return. It It may be included some that heard that initial call and didn't respond. They would be pretty old, but very likely it included their children or their grandchildren. And we see God's faithfulness at work and still providing this, this uh, liberty, extending this call to liberation to his people who had been captives in Babylon. The king likewise provided out of his treasures gold and silver, apparently allowing Ezra to collect from Babylon along with the, the, the offerings of uh, the people of Israel. In fact, he directed him to buy everything that was needed and gave him the freedom to do as he wished with the rest, the leftover money, after he had purchased all these uh, things necessary for the worship uh, and uh, sacrifices of the, of the temple. In fact, he exempted all these office bearers and temple officials and servants from taxation of any kind whatsoever, It occurred to me in reading this, if this is kind of a scriptural foundation for the practice in much of the Western world, that that churches are exempt from uh, taxation. They have 
tax-exempt status. And like so many things in Western society, without realizing it, often these things are based upon biblical principles. And it made me wonder if this is kind of a biblical basis for that, that practice that is uh, yet in effect today. The king authorized Ezra to appoint magistrates and judges. Now that's an exercise of significant authority, isn't it? To appoint judges and magistrates, and he could do so according to his standards as one who is subject to the law of God. And if they didn't know the law of God, Ezra was to teach them the law of God so that they could implement it in their work. And then the king authorizes enforcement of the law. That meant that uh, the execution of judgment would accompany uh, the enforcement according to, uh, again, Ezra's leadership, whether that enforcement involved death or banishment or uh, confiscation of goods or imprisonment. You see the tremendous leeway that this Persian king gave to Ezra to actually implement God's law, and uh, the whole surrounding region was involved. Uh, it, it extended beyond uh, Jerusalem and Judea, but the surrounding region, they were also enlisted to provide support uh, for this, this work. Now, we don't know what Artaxerxes' motives were, do we? Uh, at one point, he says, why should there be wrath against the king and against his sons? And uh, that indicates a kind of respect and fear for the God of heaven. Now, whether that was a kind of polyistic respect that many of these kings had for a whole variety of gods, and he respected also the God of Israel and didn't want to provoke him, and so he accommodated uh, to him to some extent, we don't know for sure. Whether it really it could have been a real recognition of the sovereignty of, of the Lord. But whatever the case, it really doesn't matter. Because the point here is not the motivations of Artaxerxes. It's the hand of God that we are to see. It's a hand of protection and a hand of preservation for his people, for his church at that time. And the hand of God is sometimes shown with a kind of mysterious power, even over the powers of this world. You know, the book of Proverbs says that uh, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whatever way he chooses. And here we have an example of that. That's a prominent theme in this whole book. You might say it's a prominent theme in the Bible. Think of the book of Daniel. It's also a prominent theme in the New Testament. And we need to keep that in mind today. We need to know that civil leaders are in the hands of God. That Christ is exalted. That he is raised above all principality and power, over might and dominion, every name that is named, both in heaven and on earth. And he is made head over all things for the church on behalf of his church. And what that means today for us, in many respects, is thanksgiving for the measure of freedom that we still enjoy. 
for the fact that God shows his gracious sovereignty in allowing us freedom of worship yet, yet the freedom to educate our children, the freedom to travel, to do so many things that are such a privilege that distinguish us, really, from so many of our brothers and sisters in the world. We're privileged that the hand of the Lord is shown in this way, and we ought to be thankful for it, and we ought to continue to pray that God indeed would uh, so direct those civil authorities that are over us so that uh, we might lead quiet and peaceable lives with all godliness, that we might continue to enjoy these freedoms. And also we need to pray with humility and uh, pray for patience because the hand of the Lord over civil leaders is, is used for the protection of the church and the preservation of the church. It's also used sometimes uh, for the sanctification of the church through trials. But even when earthly powers oppress and don't respect uh, the freedom of worship that they ought to, yet the hand of the Lord is at work. And sometimes he's testing then his people for their good, for their sanctification. And we need to remember that. See the hand of the Lord there. And then finally, see the hand of the Lord. I noticed this point somehow got chopped off in the bullet, and that happens sometimes uh, with uh, work with computers and documents. But there was one other point, and that is that the hand of the Lord uh, works wonderfully by, by giving encouragement. And uh, it's an encouragement that he gives for the sake of action. And here the hand of the Lord is confessed in a very personal way uh, by Ezra in verse uh, 28 where he praises God. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. You see how, the, how Ezra here confesses the hand of the Lord upon him in a very personal way. In the previous instances, he is the inspired reporter. He says the hand of the Lord was upon him. The hand, referring to himself, the hand of the Lord was upon him for good. And here he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he took great courage from that. He was strengthened by that knowledge. And here we see that the hand of the Lord was not simply working for him and God's people. You know that that's always happening. It's always happening in our lives. Christ is working on behalf of his church. And that's happening even when we don't see it. It's happening even when we don't remember it. It's happening when we don't really think about it or believe it. But when that happens, when we don't remember it, we kind of lose the, the benefit of it. We miss the encouragement. But Ezra did see it. He recognized it for what it was. And that shows the hand of the Lord indeed working even in him in a very personal way. The Lord my God, that personal covenant language of uh, Ezra before his Lord. And God wants us, as, uh, as his children, all of us, to perceive the hand of the Lord working for us in that way, for our good. When you look at the, uh, the prayers of the Apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and in uh, chapter 3, 
you see that that's part of his prayer for the saints, that uh, they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, and that they might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to that mighty power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at uh, his right hand in the heavenly places. It's that very same power that is at work in the lives of the saints. And God wants us to be aware of that. God wants us to look with expectation for his hand to be evident in our lives. That we might be encouraged. That we might trust in him. And this power that works, that works in us. You know that uh, chapter 7 is really only half of the story. It's kind of the story of the preparation for the return. And uh, the next chapter uh, refers to the actual journey and their arrival in Jerusalem by the, the good hand of the Lord. And so at this point, there is yet very much to be done for this whole return of this wave of exiles to Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, we might say that that's summarized in even that description of, of Artaxerxes' role to beautify the house of God. You know that the Lord Jesus Christ is carrying that work onward in the church of, in his church, to beautify the church of God, to sanctify believers, that they might be conformed uh, to his image. And that's the work that the Lord Jesus is carrying on uh, without fail. And he encourages us also with that realization. You see that in the case of Ezra. He says, uh, um, the hand of the Lord was upon me. I took courage and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. That, that encouragement from the Lord activated him. And that's what true encouragement does in our, in our lives. It not only makes us feel comfort, but it motivates us. It motivates us to serve the Lord. It motivates us to uh, indeed seek to know more and more of this work of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. I think that outlook and that expectation is expressed in a wonderful way. And uh, I want to close with with this, uh, this prayer from uh, Psalm 90 because it really expresses this expectation and this looking to the Lord for his work uh, in the church. So I want to begin Psalm 90, reading at verse 14 where it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil, think of the captivity, years in which they saw evil, years in which they were afflicted for their sins. And then he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen.